0: Welcome to Death Holler, the place of haunted hearts and haunted homes. We welcome you to Death Manor, the home that boasts the most ghosts. Come on in, we've been expecting you. Take a look around, you might see someone that you recognize, do you hear those voices? That's just the Reverend Dr. Death and La Arena. They're so happy to see you. Sit back and relax. Make yourself at home. Your new home. And remember, when you're in Death Holler, listener discretion is always advised. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: So what's been going on?
0: Um, okay, So, The Hubby and I have been watching, excuse me, let me rephrase. The Hubby has been watching, I think it's called From. Have you heard of that horror show?
1: I have not.
0: Uh, And I've watched the first two to three episodes, and it's creepy as fuck. So, basically, it, it reminds me of like a horror version of Lost. Kind of, because basically it starts with this family, I'm going to give you the real condensed soup version, that is trying to find their way somewhere, and this tree is completely blocking the road. And there's no moving it at all. Like, it's just ginormous. It's like they're at Calavera's Big Trees in California. You know, one of those falls down. You better Mm -hmm. have some major equipment to get that out of the way. So they can't, so they turn around, they go another way, and... They roll through this town uh, and they just notice that they keep, no matter which direction they go, they keep rolling through the same area. So they're like in some kind of purgatory of some sorts or some kind of, I don't know, Bermuda Triangle, if you will, type situation. Silent
1: hilltop situation. Yeah.
0: And it's weird because I don't, I mean, based off where I'm at yet, I don't know if they're alive, if they're dead. But uh, long story short, there's monsters involved in the show. Uh, It's a survival for sure. Uh, there's two teams of people, so you can live at this one house, or you can live in this one section of the town. And the house that you can live in is mostly like a, uh, like a headmistress of sorts, you know, some kind of, uh, older lady, and it's a bunch of teenagers. And I don't know the whole situation yet of what's going on with that, but the monsters are creepy, the whole thing, there's just no explanation yet, so everything's so unknown, and, um... 13 out of 10, I'm going to recommend people to start watching it for sure. I hope so you it doesn't didn't mention end. what
1: streaming service is it on?
0: Oh, goodness. Uh, it, I want to say HBO, but let me see. Uh, TV series. from I should have probably came equipped with that information. Uh, first season. Come on. Uh, Epics now. Hello? That's different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's what it says. I didn't think it was. I thought it for some reason I thought it was HBO. But I
1: can't remember. Is Epics the one that's free? Maybe that's free to stream then.
0: Uh, I don't know. Epics now. I'm looking that up. AMC. No. Oh, okay. No, that's mm-hmm. it's gotta be. It's gotta be AMC because I knew it was one of the bigger ones. Spend your summer with Epics, watch new episodes. I don't know. It doesn't it doesn't specify what Epics is. I really want to say AMC though.
1: Okay. I, I have access to that, so I might I'll try to see if I can check it out. I need something new to watch as far as a series, so yes. that'd
0: be good. And then we've been watching the the new Resident Evil series on Netflix. Oh, Again, God. that one I've just been witnessing. I haven't been watching it. Um Hubby's very disappointed and I am not That's even slightly interested in watching, watching it.
1: That's the general consensus is disappointment. That's the reason I was wondering what, you know, you all would think about that one.
0: Yeah. Um, so like I said, I haven't really actually set my eyes on it, but it sounds terrible.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, as for myself, I decided to torture myself—not really, but like I, I figured that's where it was going to be. After all the Asian horror that we covered, I figured I would cover one more round of it by doing. There's a movie that I got a long time ago, and never watched, called a uh, uh, Kuroneko, uh, Kuro Neko, uh, which is like I think the translation's like Black Cat, and it's like an older black and white uh, Japanese film, kind of set in during the time when the samurai were like having a kind of a civil war amongst each other and it's based on an old legend about this uh, guy who leaves his family to go serve in the, in the war and while he's gone his wife and his mother who are left to you know take care of the homestead uh have like this group of these ronin who come in on them and like basically rape them and kill them and like Jeez. leave them and leave them there and then burn down the house and their spirits return basically in the form uh, these, these cats uh, come in and like you know somehow bring a uh, help them uh, come back from the afterlife and uh to exact exact the revenge upon any samurai who comes across their path and so like the movie is it's pretty well done actually it's like it's always i mean a lot of the creepier scenes are at night where like there's this lone traveling samurai who's on you know like who meets up with one of them and you know being you know either you know, cause he's a horny douchebag, and he's like <laughs> trying to actually be chivalrous. He like, uh, he agrees to help them back to their home. And when he gets there, they basically get him drunk on rice wine. And then like, whenever he goes to sleep with the, the, the wife or whatever, uh, the, the mother is there to like kind of conduct this ritual. And then like the, and basically the, the wife, uh, which is the younger of the two, like becomes like this giant, like humanoid cat and like rips him to shreds and like they repeatedly do this to anybody who, you know, comes across that's a samurai. Wow. Um, it's, it's pretty well done for the time period. The black and white actually adds to it quite a bit. And the way they did their makeup, they, They've got this weird effect, like, I mean, as ghosts, where they've got, like, their, their, like, they have no eyebrows, but, like, there's, like, black, almost, like, whiskery eyebrows that have been painted way above their heads to kind of look almost like an anime cat or something, but it's, like, way before anime, so it's kind of weird in that sense. Um, And I don't know, it's, it's kind of a morality tale, too, because the son comes back toward the end of the movie, and, like, he's a samurai now, and so they're sworn to kill all samurai so now they've got to kill the one person that they actually care about or did care about whenever they were alive and it, and there's kind of this whole thing with that so it's actually a pretty good movie hmm.
0: damn you watch some weird shit
1: <laughs> <laughs> well i i mean it was there and i was like okay i've got this criterion movie and i need to like they they only put out like the most highly you know rated by uh critics i want to see what this movie's about and it was actually pretty pretty good yeah um I had this suggested by a coworker, and I didn't know what to think about it at first. It, it's 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 okay. Is what I'll, I'll say about it. It's Case Thirty Nine. Have you seen this movie?
0: Haven't seen or heard of it.
1: So basically, uh, Renee Zellweger <laughs> is in it, and I can't I, I can't stand her as an actress, anyways. But, wait,
0: wait, wait. Uh, when was this movie made first?
1: Oh, God. I feel like it was late 90s, early 2000s. I just wanted I to see guessing. if it
0: was before or after she completely changed her face.
1: Uh, well, no, it was before the complete... I mean, she still has the pursed lemon look, but it's not as bad as it is now. Okay. Um, I mean, 2000... Well, it's 2009. It was later than I thought it was, to hmm. be honest with you. But it's still before the worst changes to her face that came later. Okay. Um. She's a social worker, which is odd because that plays into the ring a little bit, or not really the ring, but uh, the, you know, um, the grudge. But anyway, she's sent to to this house where this, like, little girl's, uh, well, she gets a phone call to go to this house, and investigate this little girl whose parents are supposedly, like, abusing her. And the parents are super weird and they, um, <clears throat> and they got this thing where when they come in and they have to prove to like the other social workers, there's nothing wrong. They're perfectly, you know, perfectly upstanding people. But when she's talking to them, like the dad is like seething with rage. He won't even look at her. Uh, the mom has to kind of talk for him and like, she's very like weird and all that about it. And whenever they, the little girl's like acting like she's been beat every day of her life, like her head's down and like, she doesn't respond. So like they build this empathy toward the little girl and, uh, whenever Renee Zilweger finally convinces them to go after and save the little girl, uh, that there's something wrong. Like, and it has, uh, uh Ian McShane in it from, uh, Deadwood. And also he's the guy who's over the hotel in the John Wick movies. If you know what I'm talking about, you know, yeah. he's that guy <clears throat> when they convince, when she convinces him to get the cops involved, they actually find the couple trying to burn the girl alive in an oven. So that's how you start the movie out. <laughs> and, turns out the little girl is like been demonically possessed since birth. She's like this evil creature who, whatever your fear is, she's almost like a miniature version of it, whatever your fear is, she can whisper it back to you and you will live that and, and basically die of fear. And so there's this scene, it's, it's got a young, it's got Bradley Cooper in it and there's, and the, and it's the best scene in the movie where he tells her, cause he's a, so he's kind of like a child psychiatrist. He's trying to figure out what's wrong with her. And, um, and he's, I mean, he's not a bad guy. He's literally trying to figure out because he thought she was really abused. And she's like very cold with him. Whenever she sits down, she kind of reveals to him that there's something rough with her. And she, she asks him, she's like, what are you most afraid of? Like, cause he asked that to her and she asked it back to him, but it's like a setup. Oh yeah. Says, well, whenever I was younger, I was, I was like super afraid of like hornets because I got in a nest of them. And, and so that night when he goes home, there's a phone ring kind of like, You know the ring, yeah. And there's like static on the other end of it, and like whenever any here, but it's almost like a buzzing of like a hornet, and he starts having hornets crawl out of his fucking ear, and it's like the I mean, it's a cringe scene, like it's actually well, because he had he's vomiting them up, they're coming out of his ear, they're stinging him, like I mean, it's it's not merfuel, but I mean, the thing is, is that like the little girl they got to play the the like the bad guy in the movie, her name's Lilith, by the way.
0: Well, the character's yeah, name is Lilith, which, I mean, come on now.
1: <laughs> the little girl that got to play the part is not a great actress, unfortunately, for a child actor. So it that's where it lives and dies, I think. I mean, it's it's got some good concepts, though. I feel like it would be actually a decent movie if they remade it, like, you know, with a better actress. But <clears throat> it, was, it, it had an interesting concept to it.
0: Sucks. Uh, you know she was in Silent Hill.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. No. She just didn't uh, have a huge... She was a little girl in that. She
0: was decent in that movie, but she also didn't have to do a lot. She just had to be yeah. terrified and kind of look blankly and be a, a a different kid, if you will.
1: Yeah. So Yeah, so that's something you might want to check out sometime. I mean, it's not the worst movie ever. I mean, I, I wouldn't rate it as, like, you know, a Z-grade film that, you know, uh, I mean, it, it's got enough action and stuff to it, and it's got enough decent actors in the movie. I mean, Ian McShane and Bradley Cooper, I was surprised that both of them were in it whenever I started watching it. so
0: It's got some mixed reviews. So, um, IMDb gives it a 6 out of 10. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, the critic score was 21, while the uh, audience score was 39%, so it was liked a little more. Uh, 79% of Google users liked the movie. And on Metacritic, it got a... 6.6 Six point six user score. I don't know if that's out of ten. I'm assuming that's out of ten.
1: Usually and, it is. Yeah, and yeah. the
0: Metascore gave it a twenty five, but is that out of a hundred?
1: Um, maybe. I, I think there is theirs is out of a hundred. Be honest with you.
0: Okay, yeah, because the seventy is considered good. Um, twenty five is in the red, so it, it got a pretty low score on Metacritic.
1: Um like I said, it's, it's, it's a weird one. It's, it's got, I, I don't know there, there's if the scenes were done in a better, like in a, a better way, like, I mean, in the concept of her, like she can make you live your own fears. Like, cause like the mother, like you never see what she's actually, well, I think you do actually see because she's, uh, she, uh, she's seeing that, she's on fire. So there's something like that going on. They've got her strapped to a bed and she looks like she's rated or going to die at any moment in time. Cause whatever's happening is happening to her constantly. So that's kind of, but nobody can see it other than the person who's experiencing it. So it's got that going on for it. So it's a neat idea. It's just like, I don't think it was that well done in the movie.
0: It wasn't executed very well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't have the budget or the, the, the direction to take it where it needed to go to make it excellent. Basically. Hmm. Um, and the last one I saw, which is, a, I really liked, but it's, it's, a, I'll admit it's a slow burn. So take, I mean, it's kind of like house of the devil in that sense. And I know how you feel about those type of things. Um, it was called, it's called the sensor and it's a very recent movie. I want to say it was 20, 2022 that it came out. Um, it's, it's a fantastic concept for a movie. So it's set during the, the eighties. Whenever the film censors in Britain, under Margaret Th- Thatcher, who was very conservative, had to go through and like scan through all these what they called video nasties, which is what we call in the United States just slasher films, basically. Video Low nasties. budget horror films. <laughs> yeah, that's what they called them. Um, so it's, it's like, it's, it's from the concept of these censors, in particular, one female censor, who have to sit down and they have to go through these movies that show like just the worst shit ever, you know, like people getting mutilated, you know, like rape, all that stuff. And they have to cut through the movie to get it to where they deem it's acceptable for society. So, it, you know, when there's that whole question, that's like, okay, is, you know, should the whole artistic expression be released or should, or are these people actually doing a service by preventing some of this, you know, stuff getting out to the public. And so the gist of the movie is, is that the, the main, the, I mean, the, the concept is, okay, these, these sensors have to sit there and see this unfiltered. So what is yeah. that doing to them mentally? You know, like what, what's, what's going to happen to them if they're seeing this stuff without somebody else seeing it first. Yeah. And, the, and the female censor, she, her and this other guy at the beginning of the movie, there's a controversy because they see a film, they cut it back, which they feel is acceptable. It gets out and somebody sees it and he ends up like, then the guy kills his family in the same method that it does in the movie. So everybody's trying to hold them to blame for the fact that they let it get released. But like, you know, is that the person? I mean, that goes back to the whole argument. It's like when, anytime something like that happens, is it the person or is it the art? You know, because other people see it and they don't have that problem, but you get the one person who's in the wrong mental state that sees it and they, they go psycho and they, they do bad things. Well, the parallel narrative to the movie, the interesting part is that she happens to have the same fucking thing happen to her because her sister has been missing since childhood. And it's a whole big thing between her and her parents that like they're estranged over it because they were out together. She lost her sister who was, I think younger than her and she's always been kind of like blamed for it. Well, she sees a movie that's been sent in by a certain director that she's never heard of before. And she's and the little girl that's in the movie. She swears, she swears is her sister. So she thinks that her sister has been captured by this director and held all these years to, to, you know, like to film these movies for him. And they're like, you know, very graphic, like, you know, slasher type, you know, movies or whatever. and, she makes it her personal goal in the movie to find this director and this, you know, to find, because she, she knows, you know, cause she, cause she also finds there's another video he makes later that she gets access to that. It looks like an adult version of what she believed her sister to look like. So the whole movie goes behind, you know, you're following her and she thinks she's investigating her sister's disappearance through this uh, potentially, you know, pedophilic director. But the way the movie set up, when you get to the ending, it might've been because she got triggered by the movie. Like the guy did that, you know, that saw the movie, she let get by her. So it's, it's one of those type movies. It's like, you know, you, and it it does a good thing. And the thing I like most about it, it's really artistic about it because it, like anytime that she's experiencing things in her mind that other people might not be experiencing, the, like the scenery turns red around her. It's like her fantasy world is almost like a reddish, like aggressive type thing. When it's the real world, everything's coated in like a bluish gray coloring, you know, like normal for like Britain, you know, like during like, you know, real kind of like rainy season type coloring. It's like, that's how things are normally. But anytime things turn red, she might not be the best person to be believing at that moment in time. So oh, it's wow. one of those films.
0: Oh, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> it got mixed reviews, too, um, on this one. So it got really good review on Rotten Tomatoes. Hold on. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes gave it, no, actually, uh, the tomato meter, it got a good score, almost 90%. Audience score gave it about a 60. Uh, it's got about a 60 on IMDb, 69% on Metacritic, and 69% of the users liked it on Google. So sitting right at about a
1: yeah. six out of 10. I, I wanted to watch it cause the guys on red letter media watched it and they, they swore up and down by it. And I mean, they're, I mean, they're hit or miss as far as like what I agree with them on stuff. Cause they're very against like a lot of mainstream movies, but like when it comes to like these kind of weirder indie horror movies, they tend to be closer to what I normally like. So they rec and, and I did, I enjoyed this one quite a bit. Hmm,
0: that's pretty cool. Actually.
1: And with that, I think I hear people at the door.
0: I'll let them in.
1: Reverend Dr. Death, back from peddling my miracle fetus rum, and joining me as always is the ghost that can actually pass through closed doors, La Urena. How are things at the orphanage, Urena?
0: Uh, terrible. Absolutely terrible. These children are unruly. Um, they are worse than the children that we have encountered in Japan, and I, <laughs> I'm i over it. I am over it right now. I want to beat every single one of them, but every time I throw the chunklet, it just passes right through them.
1: Yeah, that and when, when they're not like picking up slugs and and other nasty shit yeah, all the time, like are these disgrace- are some dirty kids,
0: disgusting, <laughs> vile little creatures is what they are, <laughs> alive or dead, it doesn't matter.
1: Uh, today we have a child ghost double feature for you. Uh, while drastically different films in setting and tone, these movies fall into the style of a who done it narrative. Uh, first up, we have a 2001 film from beloved director Guillermo del Toro. Uh, considered by many to be his first real foray into directing, and that includes his own self. Uh, he did make a movie prior to the movie we're discussing called Kronos, but he he had a lot of issues with that movie, so this is the movie that that he calls his first one. And to finish off the episode, we have a criminally underappreciated George C. Scott classic from 1980. So put away your slugs and rough-eared comic books, pull up a seat next to the grand piano, and listen in as we discuss the devil's backbone and the original version of The Changeling. Ooh. If you're enjoying the podcast, we would appreciate if you could take the time to like, comment, and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you prefer. It helps us get more visibility on podcast listings and helps us grow. We appreciate everyone who listens and hope you enjoy the show.
0: Yeah, and for everyone listening on Amazon Music, man, we are—that is where we are getting our best traction. So uh, I just want to say thank you to Amazon Music for one basically telling us, Hey, put your podcast on here and
1: (laughs) true, they did.
0: Yeah. And too, I mean, that's where it's killing it right now. So far, almost all the episodes. And since we've joined Amazon music, I swear that's where, I mean, we're climbing in amount of people downloading our episodes. So thank you everyone who is listening and taking the time.
1: Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Um, So this episode, we don't have an Attack of the Bees or a, uh, I think I downloaded the wrong movie because we didn't feel like the, we didn't feel like the nature of what we were discussing with the ghost children necessarily lent itself to either one of those. That's kind of gross. Yeah. We're going to veer away from that. We're just, we're going to just discuss the movies this episode. So sorry about that, but they will be back in the, in the future episode, in the next episodes we're discussing. We'll get to that toward the end of the podcast. Yes. The first movie that we have today is The Devil's Backbone, a uh, 2001 film, uh, also known as El Espinazo del Diablo. <laughs> yeah!
0: I knew you were going to say it's so cool, which is actually not not bad at all. I was expecting it to be a, a hell of a lot hunkier than that.
1: <laughs> well, I can't add enough of the, the rolling this and that, but I tried, so I there you go. There's
0: barely, there's no rolling, there's no R's, it's El Espinazo del Diablo. <laughs> So, I mean, you just got to change there, some there Bs to Vs, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, it's directed by Guillermo del Toro, uh, written by him, uh, Anthony uh, uh or how do you say that name? You, you probably can pronounce. Why it does it look me. like
0: trashy whores? Is what I wanted to. Know. Uh, that's
1: what it, that's uh, that's that's his name. I, that's why I was just trying to say it without making it look like it was trashy whores.
0: Uh, so. is how you would pronounce that.
1: Trash oras. Okay. But I want to know what
0: that means in English. So please continue and I will. <laughs> I'm checking this out.
1: <laughs> and uh, David Munoz, um, written by Javier Navarrete, and a budget of $4.5 million USD, but the box office was only $6.5 This did not blow it out of the water, but there's something to be considered with this movie. It came out right after 9 11. Okay, so. hang tight
0: to that real quick. Trashoras in English, it it translates to rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> and I could Maybe have it's that. Like a pit. That, that was the Portuguese. It- so.
1: Uh, do you think it's like a pseudonym name? I don't know. I don't know. mate. Because Del Toro always sounded like a made-up name, like, for him. Like, uh, it was like the bull. Like, okay, you know, that's that's cool. But, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know.
0: Well, Maybe, it could be know. like back in the day how um, when your last name was Carpenter, it meant that your family descended from Carpenters, things like that.
1: Oh, that's true, yeah. So
0: um, I honestly thought that tres Horas, I was thinking three hours. Like, tres Horas. <laughs> So that's what I thought. That,
1: that, yeah. Okay. I can see that.
0: Um. I mean, my my maiden last name is a derivative of uh, the good life. So I don't feel like I'm living the good life, but I'm living an okay life. <laughs> if there if there's a translation for the okay life, I'm I, that's me.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I've got one of those typical English names. It's just a town that your family originally came from. So there you go. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um. So, what do you think about the fact that it didn't really knock it out of the park at the box office on this one?
0: I mean, I'm not well-versed in Guillermo del Toro's movies. I'll, that's the last time I'm saying it like that. Um, I'm not well-versed <laughs> in how well his movie's done. I know he's had some pretty epic failures in terms of films. Um, with this one being in, this one was 2001, correct? Yes. I'm not surprised only because I don't feel like he was that well known yet. And so for these numbers, and I don't know if this is like current numbers or if that was just at the time, if it was at the time, it would make more sense. I don't, and I don't know that this movie would have picked up any traction beyond that. So maybe it's not doing super amazing now, but we'll discuss how we feel about the movie as we go in to kind of, you know, discuss numbers a little further.
1: So, so so here's a comparison and we'll get to the, the point of this the reason i'm comparing the two of these together but pan's labyrinth which came out after this by about 5 years was made for about 19 million and it made 89 million so wow. it really did well How, what yeah. was the budget of that yeah. one 19 million
0: i mean it had a little bit bigger of a budget it's not a tiny budget but that's still that's like like six times four times the amount you know
1: yeah yeah it, i mean pan's labyrinth i think was his first big success if i remember right. yeah that's the one that i, I remember when the, it came to the theater but was like oh now this is a everybody needs to see this you know
0: the problem with pan's labyrinth and how guillermo del toro is as a creator is that it really set the bar really high and it was almost like you can't do anything even slightly less than pan's labyrinth or we're gonna hate it
1: <sighs> that's true i'm I'm glad that I, I don't know, I saw this movie sometime around Pan's Labyrinth, uh, the one that we're discussing today, so The Devil's Backbone, so I'm I'm happy that I didn't see it like drastically after the fact, because you go back and you see it and you realize it's a much simpler film, but, there, but it's not bad for that, mm-hmm. it's just that it, yeah. it's not like the, it's not got the fantasy elements that a lot of his later films have.
0: Yeah, and I'm just like, I, I it, it's kind of cool to compare the two because it's one thing to have fantasy, but it's one thing to have something that's more realistic or that can be, you know, a, situ- a real situation. So that's the furthest I'm going to go and at this early in the podcast on that.
1: Yeah, yeah. well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that because there actually is a uh, through line between these two movies that, that I didn't even realize until I started researching this. So principal players for this, we have Fernando Tielve uh, playing Carlos, uh, who is a recently orphaned child. He's smart. He's meek. Protagonist, he's basically a stand-in for Guillermo. Like if you you listen to Ger- Guillermo tell his version, like on the commentary, this character was him. Like the way he was bullied as a kid because he was very artistic and introverted. You know, it, it's basically a stand-in for him. Yeah. Um, Pan's he was also in Pan's Labyrinth though, which okay. is interesting. And, and 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 but other than that, just a lot of short films. So he's he's a Spanish actor. Uh, And and a lot of these actors from Spain, they do a lot of short films, but they don't do a lot of, like, full-length films. I don't know if that's a Spanish, you know, thing uh, from Spain, but it was kind of interesting to see that.
0: Yeah, I Um, I guarantee, I'm wondering if, like, with Guillermo del Toro, if you have a job with him, you have a job for life, you know?
1: Oh, you do, because this next actor will prove that. It's uh, Federico Lupi. Uh, who played uh, Dr. Uh, Cesares, uh, who's the mentor, uh, lover of poetry, and the hopeless romantic, and the protector of the, the orphanage. Uh, he was he was in uh, Kronos. He was in Pan's Labyrinth. He was in Mimic that uh, I believe Del Toro made after this, mm-hmm. right after this, and he was just another horror film called Necronomicon. So he is a, a director that if you – get in good with him, you, you've got a job for life. Kind wow. Of Flanagan and some of the others we discussed. Uh, Marisa Paredes, uh, who plays Carmen, the headmistress, uh, the rebel, the one-legged Mrs. Robinson.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. Well, you
1: have to watch the movie to yes. get that
0: reference.
1: Uh, uh, she was in a movie called The Skin I Live In with Antonio Banderas, which hmm. is, I think, interesting. Okay. Uh, Eduardo Noriega, who plays Jacinto, who is uh, the Judas, the Prince with no Kingdom, and the Big Bad of the movie.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, he played in a movie called Trans Siberian, The Last Stand, and Vantage Point. Kind of some action films. Yeah. Be an action character or uh, actor. Uh, Junio Valverde who plays Santi, uh, the porcelain skin, ghost child, tragic figure and the doomsayer. It's kind of interesting that the, the ghost is the one who's projecting doom, but like historic, well in lore, ghosts are more of the doomsayers cause it's usually they appear before, like, I mean, in, in, in a lot of lore, like they appear before like a major catastrophe. Yeah. So that's, I, I, I think that's interesting. He worked that into this. Um, we have, a, uh, uh, let's see, he was in Shiver, uh, which is funny because he plays another Santee in that, which I find interesting. <laughs> he played a character with the same name. Uh, Tierra del, de Lobos, a 19th century Western set in Spain, and I think he did that whenever he was, like, grown up, so that's uh, kind of an interesting thing that he did. Uh, we have Irene Vazedo, who plays Concheta uh anigo garces who or harces i guess is plays uh which is funny because when
0: i heard the name conchita i was like i have an idea in my mind of what a conchita looks like and she looks like a conchita (laughs) (laughs) very racist
1: well yeah yeah and uh adrian lamana who plays javis um so the synopsis of this film is it's uh, set in 1939 against the backdrop of the Spanish Civil War between the General Franco's right-wing nationalists and the left-wing Republican forces. A young child named Carlos is brought to the uh, orphanage by his tutor after his father dies in the war. Uh, the intelligent yet meek child is taken under the wing of Dr. Cesaris under the uh, advice of the head mistress, Carmen uh, Carlos befriends a few of the orphan boys, but it is uh, but is soon the target of the not of not just a bully, it's Jaime, but also the one who sighs, which is Santi, the ghost.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, unexploded bombs, uh, fetus rum, treach and treachery all lead to an explosive conclusion, where the fate of the orphans depends on helping the ghost child, Santi, get vengeance against his killer. So, as far as like. Discussing this movie, I mean, and we'll, and actually, discussion will probably continue into the trivia for this one because of the nature of the trivia. What did you think of the makeup and effects in this movie?
0: Okay. I thought they were, I thought they were actually pretty good. Now, it was a low budget, and I did not know that when I watched the film that it was a low budget. I assumed that it was, but given the budget they had and seeing what I saw, I thought it looked pretty good. I'm going to do a slight spoiler alert here. I personally like the way the ghost disappeared. The way, like, when it, there was a scene where he's touching Carlos, and he, like, reaches out and he just starts to disappear. Uh, not great. There's definitely better CGI out there, but I thought it did really well, consider, and even more now since I know what the budget was.
1: Yeah, and it was interesting because when he fades away, if I remember right, it's almost like he, it's like water dissipating, which fits the character you know as yeah it's like what
0: you know it's funny i'm, I'm surprised I, you, now that you say that i was actually thinking destined to win but <laughs> now it makes sense the water does make sense
1: well because he's got those floaters uh, you know like the floating stuff all around him to symbolize that he's in that pool of like whatever yeah. it is underneath the you know and 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 so he, he kind of fades and and those are left behind for a brief minute after he disappears and then they go away behind him yeah I think this is one of the coolest ghost designs I've ever seen in a friggin' movie. Like yeah. the way that they, and I mean, we'll get into it when we discuss like what, what he actually was designed to look like, but just the way that the skin looked like up near where his actual death wound was at, the way the blood like leaked up out of his head, like it was, you know, like where it was like underwater, even though he was on land. Yeah. Like, I, I think it's cool. I, I thought it was a cool way to, you can tell that Guillermo is like definitely an artistic uh type of person before anything else because like that's where his design process starts at it's like the creatures and then he kind of expands out from there and kind of like builds things around that
0: i thought it was cool too because the kid was very i mean he's described as a porcelain looking ghost of sorts but even the damage to his head it looks like a cracked porcelain to me if you see it up close
1: Yes. And that, that's that was the intention that they, they had with the budget that they were operating on. They they their his primary goal was to get that to look like he was a porcelain doll that had like a fractured part of like the, the, the head basically.
0: Yeah. And then just so we know this moving forward, because I was really curious. I actually looked this up, but the air well, the the where the water was and where the ghost of this kid pretty much resides. We'll just call it that. Um, and and his name is uh, Santi. But um, it's called a cistern.
1: Which is something that I thought about whenever the kids were pumping the water out. Is, uh-huh. Are they not pumping the same water that he is currently rotting in? That's, That's what, just something yes. I thought about. Yeah. Okay. okay.
0: <laughs> but they, they don't know. I mean. Yeah,
1: it was. It was a different time where they probably had no, I mean, well, their concerns at that time were definitely not sanitation. I mean, they were in the middle of a war
0: yeah.
1: and could barely get supplies, so they, they could have gave a shit less about that.
0: And that water looks like brown and murky and, I mean, <laughs> I don't know.
1: I, I don't I don't know how it came out filtered, to be perfectly honest with you, but that's, yeah, that's one same, thing Unless they have had some the movie, and that's about it. They,
0: yeah, they might have some kind of filtration system, uh, some older, I mean, because this is based on the 30s, obviously, or late 30s, so I don't know if they had some kind of, you'd be surprised what they did to kind of make things work, and obviously not as great as modern time, but they had to deal with what they had to do, you know?
1: Well, going back, I mean, to extreme cases, they could always filter through just, like, sets of rocks and, like, you know, um, uh, charcoal deposits I mean and you know they had access to that stuff back then so they yeah. could have done it in theory Um, so we've got that we've got the uh, the look of the 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 movie what did you think about that because I mean we're getting into that a little bit more but just the general like colors that was in the movie I mean I, I was impressed by that just because it like had that Kind of had that older look to it, like, you know, kind of that sun kiss, like, you know, older, like Western vibe going on to it.
0: Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was the other thing I was going to say is that it how it's filmed. I don't know what kind of film rate they used and I don't know what kind of filters, you know, they're putting into it. But the way they filmed it made it look like an older movie without making it look like an older movie.
1: Yeah, and that—that that was their intent. They wanted it to give to have the age to it, almost like a sepia tone, without it quite, you know, without quite delving into that. Yeah, so and I, they and didn't they overdo it. it.
0: They did not overdo it. It wasn't like the previous movies we watched, where everything was just had that too much of a bluish tone to it. And we understand what they were trying to go with. They're trying to go with a cool effect. This was going with warmer, but they didn't overdo it in this film.
1: Uh, not at all. Um, so what do you think about the cinematography of it? I mean, was there anything that stood out with that as far as like certain choices and shots that he had or anything like that?
0: Um, okay. One of my favorite shot was in – I want to say it was in the cistern, and I could be wrong, where it pans away from Carlos – and when it comes back, so it goes, the camera goes to the right. And then when it comes back to the left, uh, you got the ghost right behind him that pulls on his shoulder and disappears and he turns around. And I was just like, oh man, it just, it looks so good to me. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, that, that was a good scene. And I, and I liked all the stuff in the cistern because the way that he filmed it, he, I mean, and, and we'll get, that's also in the trivia, but like he, the, the cistern looks like massive, like, I oh, mean, yes. it looks like a huge underground space. And he did that deliberately, you know, for, and we'll get into the reasons why, But um, I would say that one of my favorite, there's two scenes that stood out in the movie to me that I really love. And one of them is the scene of Carlos at the end of the hallway, whenever he's, or not Carlos, Santi, whenever he's chasing after Carlos, Carlos is trying to find a way away from Santi. And you just see Santi like at the end of this long hallway and like framed underneath like this archway. Yeah, And it's just like, there's something just so creepy about that image. And like, you know, and that's one of the images that Del Toro said had to be in the movie because it was in his mind before he, before he figured out the rest of the movie itself. He wanted that scene particularly because he said it kind of reminded him of a nightmare that he had when he was a child, you wow. know, like trying to get away from something.
0: Yeah, um, and I mean, Santi a, is already a creepy-looking character, as it is. But I think the colors of that particular scene, specifically the red and the orange, am I, am I describing this properly?
1: Uh yes, yes. There's yeah. a lot of red and orange, yeah. It, it's, the, I don't know. Particular. It's
0: like added to the effect of it for some reason.
1: Uh especially the blood coming out of his head in that oh, scene like oh it's yeah. way more prominent, <laughs> you know. Um the other thing that, that I love is <laughs> The other thing that I love in that or the, the in the movie is right at the end when uh is spirit is a spoiler alert. I mean, you're you're listening to this, so hopefully you you've got to that point, but um He's like watching the the spirit. His spirit is watching the boys leave the orphanage, and it's just him silhouetted, uh, silhouetted in black, and like that's all you see of him. You don't, you never see his face. It's like you never see anything but his black, like the blackout of his body. And I just love that because it. I mean, there's. There's something sad and creepy about it the same exact instance because you know that he's trapped there forever now, but he chose to remain there for, like, I mean, he even told the kids in a prior scene in the movie, he said, don't worry, I'm not going to leave you. Like and and that's like you know the proof that he he won't because he's stuck there now.
0: Yeah, and I mean he made sure that they made it out safe. I mean he fulfilled. If anything, I feel like it it he could be at peace if he wanted to because he fulfilled his promise.
1: Yeah, he did, but I feel like it, I don't know that his promise was necessarily to them, I think his promise was just to protect the place in general because, I I mean, his ties to Carmen, I think, were holding him back, too.
0: Yeah, maybe. Um,
1: Because he felt like he didn't do right by her because she died before and he wasn't able to protect her.
0: And nothing will hold you down more than a woman. I swear she will hold you back, (laughs) even if it kills her
1: um what do you think about the what do you think about the music in the movie
0: okay if i'm being very honest with you i didn't notice the music very often except for the scenes when santi was about um or i mean i guess it makes sense that whenever there's something kind of going on um you know suspenseful yes the music kind of you know led up to that which was pretty good um i didn't have any issues with the music
1: I was going to say, because we've had the criticism in the last two Asian uh, episodes where we commented their music doesn't necessarily match up in tone to what the horror scene demands. And I feel like this movie had that. I mean, it's got the, the sweeping building, you know, like creepy music. Whenever Santi's around to kind of heighten, you know, like, and, and, and well, I would say even uh, Jacinto, like it's probably more yeah. of an issue. It's, it's played more when he's around. Um, and there is a, there's the lack of music in one particular scene we'll get to in the trivia. And there was a reason for why there was no music there, but, um, I feel like that the rest of the music played more like an adventure movie, which was an interesting take that del Toro did. Like, I mean, he was, uh, I mean, if you listen to it, it's almost like a, uh, Spielbergian type, yeah. like, you know, Indiana Jones. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was, I mean, it, they went that route with a lot of the music as opposed to, like, the the creepy, just, like, harpsichord-like banging sounds that you normally hear in a in a horror movie.
0: Yeah, um, and that I feel like maybe perhaps is a Spaniard-type thingy. I mean, we've seen it in other movies. It's not solely strict to them, but I guess for Guillermo del Toro, I don't know if you got into any trivia that would have explained why he felt the need to do that because I feel like other – movies he's made are just mostly darker in tone in terms of music. But this, I don't know, maybe it's because there's, it brings more of a brightness to the children, you know? I don't yeah. know, makes well, it makes it, less, it makes it a little less dark, but it was still a really good film.
1: Yeah, I, he doesn't specifically address the music in that sense, but when we get to what he envisioned the tone of the movie to be, it plays into that. Okay, so. and
0: I think the contrast works because, One minute you're gleeful, one minute you're like, fucking shit, you know? (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like you go from like these uh, little daytime romp scenes between, you know, just like kids having a spat to, you know, like this uh, creepy ghost kid who's, uh, you know, tracking you down in the middle of the night and, you know, uh, you think might end up killing you if he, you know, grabs you or something. So, you know, it's kind of going back and forth between the two. And interspersed with all that, there's people like literally getting murdered like in the town, you know, like there's scenes of that, like the actual war itself, you know, that uh, Cesare, you know, witnesses, and you know, so that that's kind of going on while these kids are having their own little adventure at the orphanage. Like the real world's going through some shit. Oh you know, yeah, right around them.
0: Yeah, the world's falling apart. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. If Santi was coming to me asking me for help, help would not be the first thing I. That would be on my mind <laughs> of helping this this child out. Like, oh why? What do you want? Leave me alone. You're scaring me. I don't like this.
1: (laughs) So... So we're going to get into this for both these movies that we're discussing today. I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have stayed around to solve either of these murders. And I mean, one of them is because the the ghost is creepy looking, uh, but tragic, which is its salty. Yeah. But when we get to the changeling, it's an outright malevolent type spirit at times. So it's like, why the fuck would I stay around this thing? You yeah.
0: Know? I mean, you know? I, I know. Yeah. I don't know. It, it is a. <laughs> I guess you don't know it at the time but for sure you you can chalk it up to a, it's a child that's not being listened to ultimately you know um in both cases yes you know. <laughs> and I and I had to ask little Lucipin I was like hey you know she's look at she's she's half Mexican but she's she's white you know and I'm like okay what would a white woman do and I'm like hey if you encountered this kind of thing would you go and investigate she's like heck no and I was like oh good that's the Latina coming through we would not <laughs> We would not be like, what is this? Let me take my little candlelight and go, you know, investigate. That is not in our spirit at all. So, uh, yes, little Lucifina, little Miss I'm not afraid of most things uh, would not go investigate strange abnormal noises in a mansion or in a cistern, whatever, or a old creepy orphanage.
1: I feel like the Appalachian response to this it goes two ways. It's either I'm getting the hell out of this place. This trailer isn't, you know, worth <laughs> this you know, risking my life in, or it's the defiant, no ain't nobody will tell me that I can't live in my house, especially no fucking ghost. You this know? here's so my
0: property ways. and I'm gonna do it right by it. <laughs>
1: yeah. That's the two ways that you got in this area. It's like, there's no in between yeah. we don't care that you're, you're wanting us to solve your murder. We just want you to hell out. So. I'll be
0: honest <laughs> with you. I've had some weird dreams. You, you know all about them. If something approaches me in my dream and I don't like the feeling immediately, I can in my dream, make it go away. But it, I've never been approached by anything that's scary looking, but if I'm being approached and I say, what do you need? And there's a direct message. Fine. I'll do it, but then you gotta go. <laughs> like that's it. <laughs> can you come in? Absolutely, you cannot come in. I know how this works.
1: Yeah, I've never been asked that. In, you're done. I, yeah,
0: Which... and that is one thing. My grandma, in one of my dreams I had about my grandma after she was deceased, she was like, "Never call on a spirit." She's like, "Yeah, maybe a spirit might come to you if they need help." She goes, "But do not ever call on any of them."
1: That plays into quite a bit more. Speaking of, uh, you know, Latin heritage, uh, you know, the orphanage that Del Toro produced later on after this movie, like that plays that heavily because that's a total situation of where somebody invites the spirit back with them and shit starts happening. So. Okay,
0: we talked about the orphanage. Did he? Did he do the orphanage?
1: He produced it. He did not direct it.
0: Okay, what well, he is not like on the immediate like bill.
1: Yeah, it just says, if you look at any kind of advertising for it, it just says a Guillermo del Toro production. And, like, it was, like, a friend of his that needed some kind of, like, clout, so Guillermo, uh, you know, like, added his name to it just so that he could, like, you know, get the financing, I believe, to get it done.
0: Okay, but can we agree that this was a Guillermo del Toro film?
1: Uh, The Orphanage, uh, for sure. I mean, like, it it almost feels like a sister movie to this one, to be perfectly honest with you. Thank
0: you. Because I'm like, okay, because I was looking it up, and I was like, God, I really wanted to discuss The Orphanage. I really liked that movie. It was a tragic film, for sure. But it says director J.A. Bayona, and I'm like, who the fuck? Okay, that's, I think it's wonderful that Guillermo del Toro is helping him. But this was a Guillermo del Toro film. Sorry, Mr. Bayona. (laughs)
1: That's, that's almost like when we talked about uh, Poltergeist when it's supposed to be a Toby Hopper-directed film, and it's like Steven Spielberg got his hands all over that fucking yeah. movie. There's no way it's not a Steven Spielberg movie. 100%. Uh, um, well, going back to this movie, The Devil's Backbone, the story in this one, I don't know what you felt about it, but I love the story in this movie. Like, I love it. Like, I love the way that he it, – it, I, mean, I mean, it goes in the trivia, but this is like a chi- – this is like almost a um, – it's, it's like a fairy tale movie, and that's what he, uh, you know, like, you think about it, like, it's got the tropes. It's like a kid is, uh, you know, like, uh, is orphaned, you know, kind of like Hansel and Gretel, something like that. They're, you know, like, met with this, this, uh, you know, otherworldly thing that they've got to deal with, and then they have to, you know, like, the witch or whatever, you know, in that story, and they've got to, like, you know, rise above and, like, meet that, you know, even though they're children. It's got It's got all the trappings of that. But it's like in a modern setting, and I, and I love the way he did that.
0: Yeah, um, the story, I, it, it's not that it wasn't a good story. There is a lot going on in the story, in the background. There's like two major plots going on. Well, actually three if you count the war outside, you know.
1: There's the war outside. There's uh, Jacinto trying to get the gold. Yes, uh, there's the, which is there's a part of farming. the adventure. Yeah, there's there's Carmen who's trying to uh, you know secure their way out of there, but at the same time she's also she she's got a potential lover in Doctor Cesaris, but like she won't, but like he's impotent, so he can't give her what she wants. So there's that uh, tele, you know, like there's that that Mexican like you know uh, like televised drama almost going on like romantically <laughs> between them, you know, yes. telenovela or whatever. Yes. Which speaking of that. Guillermo de Toro on the commentary mentioned he loves those. He says he blames his Mexican heritage for that, but he loves the hell out of those, like very, very melodramatic, like, you know, uh, uh, television, you know, style things. So he said if there's any of that that snuck into the Carmen, you know, love triangle, he said that blame it on his Mexican heritage because he couldn't leave it out. So yeah, you 100%. And it. <laughs>
0: I I th- I thought Guillermo del Toro was more Hispanic and not Hispanic um Spanish than than Mexican. Um I, I hold on. Oh, no, he's Mexican. Mexican filmmaker. Um you know, yeah. I'm not even uh, fluent in Spanish and I <laughs> Grandma Beans used to watch the, you know, the um, Telemundo is what we have out here. And, yes, we watch the telenovelas. And, oh, my God, they are so dramatic. Just like when you see that gif of the Mexican gasp or gasping in Spanish, you know? Oh, yeah, It yeah, really yeah. is. It is so dramatic. And it's funny because you don't even need, you don't really need, like, um, any kind of uh, English translation or anything like that. You know what's going on just off of the acting. <laughs> Very it reminds me, it's
1: a tangent but it reminds me a lot of the american soap operas oh yeah um you know which which is what it is but like you know done in a different way it's uh there's an old john candy movie that doesn't get enough love in my opinion called delirious where he's working oh, on one delirious. of those he's a writer on it yeah and he gets knocked out and he actually becomes like a god in his own like tv show because whatever <laughs> he writes comes true
0: oh my god and
1: uh and it's like everybody in that world, like, you know, they, they deliver their lines like they're in, you know, like a, a very bad soap opera because there's like one character who's always saying that he's been like adopted. And every time he talks to Raymond Burr, like he's like, well, maybe I'll find that out when I find my mother. And then like it plays dun, 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 you know, like in the background, it's just, it's, it's so good, you know, like the way they, they overdramat you know, dramatize everything in it.
0: Um, another tangent, but at least it's about Guillermo del Toro, is uh, Guillermo del Toro looks like a white man.
1: Yes, he does. Yes, he does. (laughs) This is why I thought
0: he was Spaniard. I was looking at him, and I know they make Mexicans in that color. Okay, I'm a pretty pasty Mexican. (laughs) But he's also got blue eyes. Now, green eyes are common with Mexicans, but blue is not very common, so (laughs) that's funny.
1: Um... Yeah, he he comments that not only is Carlos uh, modeled after him in the movie, but uh, the character of Jaime is, is, uh, you know, the bully in the movie is actually modeled after him, but there's only one aspect, and that's the fact that, you know, Jaime in the movie has like that whole love affair with Concetta that's never resolved. Cause you know, obviously she's way too old for him, but like Del Toro admits, he's like, he was always pining after these beautiful women that he had no chance in hell of ever getting, you know, when he was a kid. So yeah, he's, he said, that's, that's kind of the, you know, where Jaime is like based on him too, to an extent.
0: Um. Also, um, hold on moving, not moving on from Guillermo yet. If you Google Guillermo Del Toro, the first question Google asks are, are Benicio Del Toro and Guillermo Del Toro related? <laughs> related. The answer is yeah. no, ladies and gentlemen, just because you, they have that Del Toro last name.
1: You can tell by their appearance that they are not related. One is very much more on the, you know, like darker, you know, side. And the other one is, you know, like you said, looks kind of like a white guy. So. Yeah. Um. I think I don't know the story. I like that you know, like we talked about that playful, like adventure part of it. I I, I don't know. There's I, I know there's a lot going on. There's all these different aspects, but I feel like they work into the overall story. Like yeah. I mean, like they get they get wrapped up enough to where there's no like hanging threads anywhere, you know, or at least not any that were unintended.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think by when by the time you see, well. I don't know. I mean, unless I missed something. I mean, yes. The, the, at the end, there's some children that escape. But does it? Is there any implication? What happens after that?
1: Oh, we'll get into that. There's some meaning behind that. Okay. The, this movie is loaded with meaning upon meaning. This is almost like Kubrick. What the a Guillermo as as like De, uh, del
0: Toro of- film? No. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. There's. Yeah. Um, I do want to say a couple of things though. I there, In the scene where the boys are fighting uh, H- Cinto in the, in the like under part of the, you know, the caverns or whatever. The cistern. Uh, the cistern part of it. Um, I, I, I got a lot of vibes from uh, um, Lord of the Flies from that scene, you know, like, cause they were like making the pig stickers basically. Yeah, you know, That's how they took them out. The pig um, stickers. And, you know, of course that, <laughs> well, that's what they were. I mean, you know. Yeah. And he was a fascist pig, and we'll get into that whole thing. So it, it kind of works. Um, and also the fact that the way he dies, he's weighed down by his own gold. Oh yeah, like that was there's it's that's poetic. And I know it's more in more things than just you know that. But I got a lot of vibes from like like I mentioned earlier, Judas in the Bible or whatever. You know, like he he basically sold them out for like his you know thirty pieces of silver or whatever it was, and it ends up that that drug him down and caused the death anyway. So it was like it, he was. It is a morality tale like what he was he sought out and then sacrificed everything for was actually his unmaking in the end, anyways.
0: Uh, it, and this it's like he brought the gift of myrrh, murder,
1: <laughs> murder, <laughs>
0: Judas. No. <laughs>
1: Santi, no, yeah, <laughs> no, actually, do do hold him under the water. That's right, kill him.
0: Oh my God, um, yeah, that was that was pretty cool too. But yes, the the definitely the gold bringing him down was um, poetic justice for sure.
1: Uh, anything else you want to add about the story before we get into this trivia? Because this is some good trivia for this episode.
0: Um, You know what? I just want to uh, circle back around to this being like an adventure because it really was. I mean, it was a scary adventure, but it really does show that this really wasn't like a made-up adventure. Yes, there was a ghost in it, but if these kids weren't like preparing themselves for battle against, you know, um, why do I want to say Judas now? Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> Jacinto. Jacinto. They would have had to prepare for battle for something else. That wasn't something that was uncommon. Mexico went through something very similar where a lot of kids were in orphanages because there was a war that was going on. And sometimes a lot of them had to fight for their lives too. And they're just yeah, children. I
1: mean, well, and that's something I'm glad you brought up. Though, about I feel like, and we don't give this credit in, in movies that do it well, I feel like the the children felt like children in this movie. Like the sense that, I mean, they, you know, their motivations, the way they acted, uh, you know, the, the, I mean, they're like just some of the stuff they did. Like, I mean, the way they talked to each other, the fact that the one who's the artist, you know, the bully Jaime, like his, his art, like when he drew a woman, like he drew a sideways vagina. Cause he was, he didn't know, you know, yeah. that they went the other way. <laughs> like I, there's, there's all those little ailments added up. And I feel like it added to the feeling of that. this was, was like, You know, because you watch some films and the kids like, you know, for instance, The Ring, the American version of The Ring, that kid acted unnatural. He was like way too old for his age as far as the way he acted. The kids felt like kids in this movie, and I like that whenever they do that with films like this. Yeah, and
0: it made it more emotional because, yes, while they felt like kids, they're having to do stuff beyond their years, and they're still having to survive, and that is almost a million times harder for a child. I mean, yes, they're resilient, you know, but at the same time, you know, they, they don't have the survival skills that an adult has.
1: No, and it, and there's there's always that sadness that goes with. I mean, that's part of the movie, too. Not only for the kids, but for the country of Spain, I think, is what he was intending with that. But there's that loss of innocence that you can never get back. Once it's yeah. gone, it's gone, you know.
0: Yeah, but, I mean, like I said, it, it's survival at the end of the day, you know.
1: Yeah, and, it, I mean, there there's a bittersweet, you know, feeling that goes along with all that. Do um, you want to get into the trivia now? Yes. Okay. So, this was described by Guillermo del Toro as being a sibling film to Pan's Labyrinth in two, the 2006 film. So, this one's this the older the, brother? Yeah, this okay. one's the masculine older brother. And uh, Pan's Labyrinth is the younger, feminine sister film. Um, their story, the stories of both films rhyme with each other. They have a bookend narration. Uh, the story beats happen around the same time in the movie, and you know, etc. Like you know, like what happens to the girl in Pan's Labyrinth as uh like in her her setting which is after the spanish they're both connected by the spanish war as well okay uh this is before the spanish or that is set at the end of the spanish civil war and then where there's still hope that the rebels can fight back the franco regime pan's labyrinth is set after the war and you're actually seeing that all uh, the hope that's lost because the fascists have taken over and like the the just like how they're operating now and the girl like the little girl has to that's the world she lives in and that's why she escapes into that you know fantasy fairy world that she does in that movie
0: okay um
1: so it's interesting that these two movies have that connection to each other it's like they're happening at opposite like in the same country at opposite ends of the same situation with drastically different because i even the coloring is different in the movies like you watch Labyrinth, it's more like blue green whereas this is more like the the, you know the golden bronze rust you know colors and um It's just, I I think there's something so neat about that that he, you know, took that consideration and he made the two films that way.
0: Yeah, very creative of him. However, I want to know if there's been any pushback to the fact that he's like, oh, this is a masculine film and this is a feminine film. (laughs) Um, I don't know that. I mean, it's widely known that when you're talking about Spanish, speaking Spanish, that when it comes to describing there's feminine and masculine pronouns you know and that's how it is
1: that's how the language is established yes
0: yeah and so i mean it's like that in english too not entirely but it's like you're gonna force someone to change a whole language so i wonder because he used that description if there's people out there i could totally see people being like well i mean what about them you know
1: (laughs) well to be fair they did, he did establish all this stuff like, you know, prior to, you know, the worst of what we're into right now. I want to say that the latest that a lot of his interviews about these films come out was like 2009 or something. And it was like the, the rails went off of that whole train right after yeah. that. So, All
0: right.
1: Um, <clears throat> but yeah, you're right. If, if people heard that now, I'm sure that they'd be like, well, what about the, you know, the, the non-binaries and, and all that stuff. And, you know. I I feel like people need perspective on stuff, too. It's like even, you know, at that time, you know, like the time these movies were set, I mean, there would have been none of that going on. Like, that's a fairly recent phenomenon to even describe anything that way. But you Reverend,
0: know. it's never too late to go back and change to be on the right side <laughs> of history.